Hello, and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Today, we're putting the spotlight on a new film, Nanny, written and directed by Nikiatu Jusu. The film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this past January and made history as the first horror film to take the U.S. Grand Jury Prize for Drama. Nanny tells the story of a young domestic worker named Aisha, who is struggling to bring her son to New York City from Senegal. As the story progresses, it becomes an intriguing blend of West African folklore and horror with a soundtrack that grips the audience and heightens the tension of the story. The film is streaming right now on the Prime Video platform, and I encourage you to watch it. Nanny is also the recipient of the 2022 Dolby Institute Fellowship, which is a program that we created with Sundance to give a direct post-production grant to an independent, low-budget film, which is using sound and image in a unique and creative way to tell its story. The grant supports the filmmaker in finishing the film using Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And I'm sure if you've seen Nanny, you understand why we fell in love with this movie and why we were excited to support Nikki Atu and her vision in bringing this movie to the screen. Last week, my colleague and producer of this podcast, Amanda Schneider, got to sit down with Nikki Atu and her collaborators, supervising sound editor Dave Flinch and re-recording mixer and longtime friend of this podcast, Skip Livesey, to talk about the film. This was a post-screening conversation in front of a live audience at the Artist Academy, a wonderful program of the New York Film Festival and our friends at Film at Lincoln Center. Since it was a conversation for a crowd of young filmmakers, our panel got very candid about their creative process. Amanda started off the conversation by asking Nikiatu why she chose the genre of horror to tell Aisha's story. I <laughs> love horror's ability to elevated horror specifically, because I know a lot of people are like, this is not horror, traditional horror. And that's fine because nothing about me is traditional. So um, the, the horror films that I have reverence for, like A Tale of Two Sisters, uh, the Babadook, you know, pieces that are a slow burn, rising tension, utilizing soundscape as a character, utilizing picture as a character. Um, I find that in international horror, you get a little more leeway to not be so paint by the numbers in terms of jump scare every 10 minutes or jump scare five minutes in. Um, I'm interested in the ways that I'm centering, quote unquote, non-traditional protagonists within a genre that people are not used to seeing, specifically black women protagonists within the horror realm. Um, and I love when horror is a conduit for universal themes of grief, of regret, of depression, of loneliness, of alienation. 
So for those reasons and, and stylistically, you just get to play more with the tools, particularly soundscape. Well, the sound design does do a remarkable job to establish and build the tension through the story. And there are definitely a lot of moments, specific moments in the track that I would love for you all to discuss. A few that come to mind are um, Aisha on the pier as she sees the figure of the mermaid in the water, Aisha seeing the phantom Lamine in the park, uh, the underwater sequence in the pool right before Aisha is visited by Mamiwata. Did I say it right this time? Yes, you did. Excellent. It's better. <laughs> um, any of these, all of these. Yeah, the the pier. Um, I'll I'll lead you. I know you guys. It's been a while. Well, Dave, you just saw it. So, but the pier, particularly, like when she first sees Mami Wata, um, I think that the goal was to have her. I don't want to call it a dream world world or a um, psychosis because she sees what she sees and, and she's seeing something very tangible. But we wanted that world to collide with the realistic world, the naturalistic world. So having that sound bridge of the child crying breaks her out of this trance. And I always love to have collisions of silence and... Um, whimsy with uh, naturalistic sounds that originate in the world. I think that uh, that particular moment, um, we had the opportunity to really kind of establish that character. Um, it's one of the first times we were experiencing her, so really establishing what her sound is going to be moving forward throughout the film. So, so there, there are opportunities to sort of segment those two characters, the Mamiwata character and the Anansi character. And this is one of those moments, again, where we sort of like tried to sort of carve out moving forward what that story is going to sound like throughout the film. And I think that um, throughout the notes that that we'd gotten from Nikki Atu um, over the course of, of making a film, one of the things that she wanted was to make sure that there was a clear distinction between those characters. And I think that was established also with music, along with the sound design, the choices that we made. So as you go through that, and in each of those moments that you talked about, um, there's this distinct decision to sort of create water elements as opposed to other elements for for the, the Anansi character. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we sort of took the entire soundscape on that path and try to stay consistent with that. And again, with music too, we tried to do yeah. the same, same thing with established with music. I agree. I, I really like the, um, the kind of middle ground, like middle earth where you have, um, it's really in, in some places it feels almost like a documentary. Mm. And then in other places it's quite abstract, really abstract, especially, uh, and with regard to sound and music, and the bridge is is crucial, and and that's what makes it kind of actually kind of believable, actually, yeah. and it it heightens the the um, context is so heightened that when the sort of abstract events arrive, uh, the audience is already primed. The audience already sort of you're kind of in letting them grab onto it the way music traditionally does it where we oftentimes we have a symphonic score and it's loud or bombastic or quiet and subtle and it helps the audience know 
whether they're supposed to cry or laugh. And those are really key things for the score. And here we have, instead, we have we have these really um, kind of Middle Earth sounds that are, are bridging between the reality world and um, the dreamscape, I guess it would be. Yeah. I don't want to say mean, nightmare because it isn't a nightmare. Supernatural. Like, yeah. The supernatural realm. I love hearing sound people uh, talk about sound because I, I get new adjectives to utilize and specifically for sound because it's a language. Like when you engage, I find that my learning curve in the post-production process for sound is, is me listening to sound people talk about sound. Like, do you want a sound that feels full or do you want like just utilizing that language to really convey what you need as a filmmaker is uh, one of my favorite parts of collaborating with sound people. Bum, bum, bombastic. I would never describe. I'm going to start doing that. Music. That's like a music that. term. <laughs> well, like speaking it. of music, we were also just talking about that. Could you talk a little bit more about the music of the film? Yeah, so the music is something that came into the process early for me. I write to a playlist when I'm writing projects. I outline, I conceive of ideas. I create a playlist as I start a project. Um, Spotify, you know, I, I literally have a nanny playlist that Blumhouse just shared because they're one of our distributors. And I think it was really smart of them to try to give the audience an idea of the soundscape that I was thinking about in the conceptual stage. Um, Do you have that on the set? You know what? I I had a couple of songs, especially for the intimacy. I did. I had I had some of the songs that spoke to the the sensuality and the longing between Malik and Aisha on set. Um, but I wanted to use artists who were quirky, who were eclectic, who had these sounds that were hard to pin down. So Tenario is an artist who's up and coming, who's amazing. And she just, her breathlessness, like the the staccato breathlessness and her humming and her um, moaning, like that's throughout the film because she, her soundscape represents Aisha's void and Aisha's um, breathlessness and her inability to breathe. She's being crushed by this system, by this, this, this what she's navigating. So I wanted to reflect that feeling of suffocation in the soundscape. I, I thought it was a great collaboration between Bartek and yes. Tenariel. I, yes. th I thought that when we initially talked about that idea, I wasn't sure what that was going to sound like. But it, when, once I heard it, I thought it was amazing, the two of them collaborating for the, the score. Um, did a really powerful uh, job in terms of the interpretation of that. No, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought up Bartek. So Tenario was someone, is someone who is a rising artist, a musician, and I knew I wanted to bring her on to do her first score for a film. Well, she kind of pitched herself a little bit, which I found ambitious and I loved it. Um, but sometimes when you're in, ushering someone new into something that they don't have a, a resume for, you have to pair them with someone a little more seasoned. So she collaborated with this Polish, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? Composer, Bartek, named Bartek. They were they look like an unlikely duo, but they really work together really well. Did you have um, temp score uh, during I your did. edit? I did. And you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Don't say it was better. 
No, that I wasn't going to say that. Okay. I just, I had an editor, my the main editor, who had completely different taste for me. And so that was tricky to navigate. I, I didn't, I knew I was going to have somewhat of a fight in the edit because I understand editing and I have a lot of reverence for editing, but he literally has opposite taste for me. And so some of the sounds that he would use, even temp, I would be like, I would struggle to say it nicely because we were just on two opposite ends of the spectrum stylistically. Um, but in that regard, it's, it's so important to have that temp stuff to use as a reference for someone who doesn't get it organically. Did, did that guide you to the, with you, in your battle with the editor? Did <laughs> the you temp? get, you got to the right place or did you just what, agree what do you to disagree? Skip, I think we got to the right well, place. We did, yeah. yeah. I'm just talking about you and the editor. Uh, I heard his feelings oh. a few times, but <laughs> this is my baby. Yeah. So... To be re- had to be real with that one. Yeah, I think the first too. time we saw the film, there was a temp track for the music as well as uh, there was no VFX. Yeah. I think when we saw it. Oh first man, time the around. VFX was embarrassing. <laughs> it was, it's like showing somebody, yeah. It's like no. showing somebody your bikini body before you start the process of getting to your bikini body. It was, yeah, there was a lot of temp VFX in there too. Well. I bring it up only to say that we were so struck by the film at that point and it didn't have a lot of the elements, you. you know, that were part of the finishing process of yeah. the film. So you saw the potential. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and in rewatching the film, something that really struck me was kind of the contrast of the sonic environments. You know, there's a very stark contrast between Aisha and where she lives and the community that she lives within and and her friends and her life there. And then Amy and Adam and Rose's place is, you know, downtown, kind of loft-like, mm. very cold, very quiet in mm. some ways, kind of eerily quiet. And yeah. I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit more about that. Well, um, I think the idea that I had was that we wanted to establish the difference, obviously, in class and also environment. So obviously, well, not obviously, Aisha lives in Harlem. Um, Amy and Adam live downtown in this fancy loft. They're affluent. Um, I should not. And I wanted to kind of take us on that path in terms of establish those, those, those two surroundings. But at a certain point, they kind of converge mm. once, you know, the chaos starts um, between the two characters. Now they're both struggling with something obviously and and then they come to a confluence at, at a certain point and then the sound starts to evolve where they are essentially sounding in very similar in a way mm-hmm. um so i i the the idea that i had and and nikki Atu and i had, had talked about this that there was going to be a lot more activity on aisha's side than it would be on Amy's side, obviously we, we do have to establish that they're in the city at some place. So right. you do hear some of those elements, but it is also very quiet in there, but also there are a lot of big moments in terms of sound design. So if we're constantly bombarding you with, with mm-hmm. sound after sound after sound, once we get to those moments, you're not, you're, you're, you're sort of expecting it to a certain extent mm-hmm. or, or maybe not expecting, at least there's no space for it. Yeah. You know, so I, I think, 
um, and, and Skip also pulled back a lot of those elements as well in the mix. Um, I don't know if that was his Sorry, interpretation. <laughs> I'll take the blame for that. <laughs> but there's a, a fantastic tension. Even though you have two different stories, they both have a, they both have a tension. You know, they both have sort of, um, well, lurking danger on both of the, even though they're, you know, class-wise, they're quite far apart. The, the tension is there equally, I, I, I felt, mm -hmm. in, in the film. You know, the tension of the son, of course, and then the tension of the daughter and the relationship with the other couple. It's really... Uh, it's interesting how that, that that both you carried tension on both sides throughout yeah. the whole thing. You kind of crashed them together at one mm -hmm. point. We talked a lot about character arc for the soundscape too, and you know I don't think a lot of film young a lot of filmmakers in the American context particularly don't really think about. Let me not say that because I don't know every single filmmaker in America, but there is a tendency to neglect sound in in the conception stage. And so if you think about your soundscape as a character, then you can have an arc for that soundscape so that the audience doesn't become numb. Um, as, as Skip and Dave are alluding to, you know, with a relentless soundscape that is not ebbing and flowing. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of tension and release in throughout the film, um, both in the big moments and also, you know, throughout the film. Um, but one of the things that you had mentioned uh, in our meetings was this idea, which I'd never really thought about. After reading the script, I started to develop thoughts about what that world might sound like in terms of the design. And there's might have been this tendency to think that there's maybe this Africa-influenced sound. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this idea that you didn't want to present that Africa is this scary place in terms of the sound yeah. so I, I in my conversation with Paul the sound designer we, we started to talk about what else can we do to to really kind of develop these ideas without alluding to the fact that that you know this person is is from Africa without using those influences these mm -hmm. characters are rooted in in African folklore without using those specific elements mm. to tell the story so um that, that was an important note for me. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. That was important. Awesome. Well, question for Dave and Skip. Got to get a little bit of Dolby Atmos in Please, here. Because I love Dolby hearing Atmos. them talk. So just wanted to ask how, how you felt Dolby Atmos was unlocking possibilities to highlight Aisha's mental state. <laughs> I mean, it's branding. Exactly. We got to get a little bit of it in here. I mean, Skip, Dave, you I, both worked, you know, in the Atmos format. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, basically, once we started working with Atmos, and for me, that was uh, in 2012 on Gravity, it's just hard to work in any other format because it's a very high fidelity format. And the sound everywhere in the room, the speakers have a potential to play a very high fidelity sound at great volume, not just on the front and behind the screen as it had been to that point. And even with um, 7.1 and 5.1 digital, the uh, surround channels were, were limited because they're smaller. Mm 
And Dolby Atmos uh, comes along and solves that problem by adding uh, bass support to all the speakers in the room. So you can actually play a sound pretty convincingly anywhere in the room, and it sounds the, basically the same. And we, we tried that experiment on a lot of movies I worked on where you move a sound around the room and it before Atmos. It would be pretty thin and kind of puny when you're in the surround speakers, as there were only surround speakers in those days. Now we have um, surround speakers and speakers in the ceiling, and they're full frequency. So you can have a sound playing in the front, and you can pan it to the back, and it sounds pretty much the same. And that's a really big advancement just in terms of fidelity. So you have a, a basically a huge envelope around the audience where you can play sounds or music or dialogue, and um, it sounds pretty much, uh, it's not forced. It sounds pretty even everywhere in the room. So uh, it, you bump up against a, a historical issue in movies and sound where you didn't want to have, uh, if you tried to play sounds off of the screen, some people in the room would say, hey, that's distracting. You gotta, you can't have that. It's got to stay up on the screen. And many filmmakers, like when I started working in film, they would say it had to be in the center. It could only be there, anything important. And if it wasn't playing in the center, then it loses importance and uh, to the audience in the story. So the idea of having anything important play anywhere else in the room was pretty much taboo. It was nearly forbidden. And thanks to Dolby, and particularly to Atmos, you personally. Yes, me personally. <laughs> you, thanks, Deb. Appreciate you. that. Yeah. You did. And um, now, we get, now we have the opportunity to play sound everywhere. And um, so, so it's not so much that that's uh, special on its own, but what it's special because the limitations are gone. And the filmmakers, and in particular the studios, are starting to uh, agree and allow uh, a gigantic room-sized version of a soundtrack, not just the one speaker behind the screen here. Mm. So it, it was it was always my intention to mix in Atmos and because we were cutting in in an Atmos environment uh, to begin with. But once we found out about this Dolby Grant, it, it allowed us to sort of mix on a bigger stage mm -hmm. and obviously uh, get someone like Skip to mm -hmm. to work on this film as well. So we were we, we definitely were were pleased with with that situation. But but the, the advancements as Skip mentioned, you know, really lends itself to a film like this, which has such such a large amount of, of sound design areas. There's probably a good ten places that that you know we have some some moments that, particularly um, the water scene in when Aisha is in the bed. There's a lot of things that's coming from the ceiling. There's a lot of things that's moving around. There's 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 a lot of opportunity to move sound around with Atmos. So. Um, yeah, this film really takes advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Was there a favorite moment sonically in the film for any of you? That's a good question. I want to hear what the... I, I like the big run-up to the bathtub and the knife and all that stuff. I thought that was a really fun, like, dynamic and um, unexpectedly uh, bold 
yeah. <laughs> situation <laughs> in every way. Yeah. And um, I really liked, I mean, uh, one thing about Atmos is it kind of gets rid of the edges, right? So the instead of having a side to side, you really have a pretty big envelope that you're in the middle of. And that scene in particular, we tried to push that out that way. So you would feel like you're being sucked into that room a little bit into the action. Yeah. Um, well, for me, it's the um, the restaurant scene where Malik says, let me grab my purse. <laughs> that is my favorite line in the entire film. <laughs> that was improv. I had to actually reel Sinqua back from as much. In- I love improv, but like sometimes you got to. That line cracks Less me up every more. time. But but um, in all honesty, um, there there are a lot of moments in here, and yes, that that definitely that's the, that's a key moment in the film where where she's coming down the hallway and she runs into the bathroom, and that whole scene happens. Um, it is you don't know exactly what's going to happen there, and um, the way that it's written and combined with the sound and the, mu- the design and the music there, it really heightens the experience. So um, I. I really enjoyed that moment as well. I, I love that sequence too. When but when Paul sent Paul and Dave sent me the um, quick pop. So like when I just pulled under when she first encounters Mami Wata in person in the in the pool, and we get those quick pops uh, of her past and her future. They're 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 different children. Um, I love the dissonant sounds, like the the really non-traditional sounds that you would think you would hear with that type of a a sequence. And I thought about, I remember Arrival being a reference for some of this stuff. I think Arrival, (laughs) don't laugh at me. I think, did you like Arrival or you hated it? I I, I liked it to a great degree. (laughs) Um, I like the movie more than I like the story. Okay. 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 Well, so the quick pops in Arrival, I think, were the memory shards is what I call them. And I love navigating. I think in my work, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to straddle the past, present and future simultaneously. It's hard to convey. It sounds really abstract. And some people are like, what the F did I just watch? But in my brain, it makes sense. Um, So I think I love that scathing, like scratchy. How would you describe it? That, that, those quick pops, it was like grating a little bit, yeah, and I enjoyed that. You had, you had sent an, a, a, a note um, in reference to that, that spider at, at, at one point, and there was that sort of scratchy, yeah. dissident sound. So we took that as a note and tried to build it into the soundscape as well. So um, it is quite dissident, yeah. It is. It's interesting. And we used, you're, both of you are reminding me that we used marine animal sounds for Mami Wata. Like, but we didn't want it to be so literal like dolphins, you know? So I think that nature is one of the greatest references for fantasy, for VFX, whether it's creature creation or soundscape. Like how do these creatures sound? You can really pull from nature. I don't know if anyone has heard a gaggle of like hyenas in the deep of the night. It's not just laughter. It, it sounds like souls being unearthed from their tombs, you know? So if you really listen to different types of animals, the soundscape exists already in nature. You just have to pay attention to what kind of creature you're creating. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of different animals, in, in, particularly in, in that scene where 
um, Aisha is sort of being inundated with the water and she's her face is covered. There's like polar bears and all sorts of other things that's that's subtext in 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 that um, edit as well. So there are a lot of layers there. All right. Well then we'll wrap it up. Thank you. Thank so you guys. Much. Thank you. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you so much to Nikiatu, Dave, and Skip for this great conversation and to Amanda for hosting. And special thanks to our friends at Prime Video and Film at Lincoln Center for putting the conversation together for us. As I mentioned up top, you can find the Prime Video link to watch Nanny in our show notes. We have been so fortunate to have had so many top artists on our show this past year. This is our final episode of 2022. So from everyone here at the Dolby Institute, happy holidays. We've got a lot of great episodes planned for the new year, and we look forward to seeing you then. But before you go, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks again for listening.